0: Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life, an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I was thinking um, St. Paul's is really a very socially engaged um, organization. Tonight at 6.30 there will be an online Zoom Vesper service for the state of our nation. Ah. So attend that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you will hear me mention in the talk today that I'm going to be part of a faculty here that is going to begin teaching the book of Ecclesiastes. Right.
1: For Wednesday every Yeah. A Bible study. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, we just uh, got in trouble.
0: I just, yeah, I didn't <laughs> have my mic on. Do I need to repeat all that? No. Probably not. they will get it. So I was thinking also um, to encourage you to sign up for that. I found out that the last time they did one of these, a hundred people were part of the class. Oh, wow. B- big class.
1: And this will be online. Do mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you think I should take it?
0: Well. Um, you'll, or you'll
1: just give me the cliff notes when we talk weekly.
0: <laughs> I intend to copy the brief two or three pages that are in a book that Matt Russell gave me mm-hmm. called God is Disappointed in You.
1: Yes, you've talked about that book.
0: Have you seen it?
1: Yeah, you've told me about it. Is it funny?
0: Oh, it's hilarious and a little bit offensive. Yeah, sure. But this guy had a buddy of his. They were drinking beers in a bar one day. And the guy said he had never read the Bible. Uh And so the man who put God is disappointed in you together agreed that he would write a synopsis of each book in the Bible Less than two or three pages. Oh, that's great! And give it to the guy, and it ended up being published with cartoons.
1: I love that in
0: this book, and I, it's, it's funny. Yeah. It's edgy.
1: Oh, bet, that's my favorite. The Bible's a little edgy if you really get down to it. Yeah. I mean, so you take e- out all the bows and bees and thou I mean, it's it's edgy.
0: And and and, and yeah. Ecclesiastes um, did give inspiration for a song by the birds, that was popular in the Which 60s, we were just singing before. We were, just yeah. And people should be grateful that we're yeah. not singing it now. <laughs> yeah. So explore the St. Paul's website. Be aware of the service tonight at 6.30. To deal with the anguish that our country is in, we'll address that a little bit more today. Here's the plate.
1: Oh, I'll mention that. So we have... Such a generous class, and I, I, gosh, it just keeps reminding me that I keep forgetting to put the slide up, to whom we have donated by the end of the year with very generous funds from Ordinary Life, um, various nonprofits in the Houston area, some that we donated to before, a couple of new ones, including a school in Kenya. And you can donate by clicking on the donate button on the Ordinary Life website. It'll take you to a form on the St. Paul's website and you just write Ordinary Life in the memo. And we appreciate your continued support. And as I said, the money goes toward organizations who are working to empower those on the edges, those who are poor, homeless, um, just not able to make it during these times. So we're really, really, really grateful.
0: Do you want to say something about in-between? Yeah.
1: So we also have a podcast, and it comes out on Thursday mornings. We record sometime Tuesday or Wednesday. And it's our way of kind of preparing for the week, for keeping in touch with you guys during the week, um, uh, being able to sort of stay in conversation. It's on our website as well, under the podcast link, or on Apple um, Podcasts, wherever you download them. I have not yet put it on Spotify, and I know I sound like a broken record. I keep meaning to, I just forget. But join us. It's a fun way to connect. And uh, occasionally we have guests. So that's been fun too.
0: <laughs> also, I will mention that uh, St. Paul's is going to begin gathered worship next Sunday outside. Oh, really?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. So. Is it you know,
1: reservation or can anyone uh, show up? Um,
0: well, there's a mixed message in that. I, it, I, I didn't check the website for this. I know that in other gatherings, that they that we have done here that they did ask for reservations but if you don't make reservations they're not going to kick you out <laughs> it's a church
1: yeah that's true <laughs> welcome to
0: all you know yeah So oh, that's that's the message so i brought these mm mm-hmm. i uh, th- this is an anticipation of when we do gather again mm-hmm. We to uh, quiet in the crowd by doing this people would settle down with their coffee and sacred cookies. <laughs>
2: mm.
1: Maybe a while before we had to It may be cookie. a while,
0: given what the, mm-hmm. the new strain is. Mm-hmm. Anyway, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here and at any other part of St. Paul's that you would like to access. One of the ways to describe some of the gone wrongness of our country right now is that the people who are getting a lot of attention because of their behavior is that they are a combination of unaware and immature. So the other side of this coin that you see on the screen, awareness and maturity are two of the major things that mark a living Religion, Living religion is a phrase that I got from the works of Carl Jung because he said that the solution to our difficulties was going to be found in looking into the answers provided by living religion. Now, Holly knows by now, and <laughs> so does anyone who lives with me, like my bride... Or if you've been attending these classes for long, you know that um, I like to to know what's going to happen in the future. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. <laughs> and uh, one of the things, according to Sandra Matry, that marks a seven is what she calls ego planning. Mm-hmm. So I have my menu planned for the next seven days.
1: So you ego plan, I disaster plan. Is that how our personalities I do. You disaster work? plan? I really don't, actually. You don't? Mm-mm. Okay. I think I, I've, I think I've matured past that in my personality structure
0: <laughs> so uh, over the years I've done series of things mm-hmm. you know I, I did a, a series on this the Gospel of Jesus this is uh, one of four gospels done by scholars over the years scholars uh, Thomas Jefferson did one I don't think he was a scholar he just had a pair of scissors Um but there have been, it, it been others who ha, have done this. This is a good book to have in your library, by mm-hmm. the way. Uh, you, you want an understanding of the Jesus narrative. Uh, easy to read, provocative, and it will give you the essence of the teaching of Jesus. And then um, I spent what was for some people an unbearably long time doing the Gospel Thomas. But I love the Gospel Thomas.
1: I loved your teaching on it. I realize that a lot of people gave you a lot of flack about it, but I think the Gospel of Thomas is a really beautiful set of scripture.
0: It is. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, the, this is the, there are a number of books about the Gospel of Thomas that I recommend for commentary. So when the pandemic hit, and you know that it's still hitting us very, very hard here, mm-hmm. and the prediction is it's going to get worse. I asked Holly if she would co-teach with me for a couple of weeks. Yeah,
1: month or so. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're both getting grayer. Bill's getting balder.
0: <laughs> I am. <gasps>
1: yeah.
0: I asked last night if I should shave my hair and get a wig, and Sherry said get a wig.
1: Oh, really? Maybe one of those like George Washington kinds with curls around them. I hadn't it. thought about that.
0: Yeah. It would be good. Mm-hmm. So, I think you did this to humor me. I said, I need, I need a plan. And so, we picked a plan. We, went, we It took us about two months to kind of get our bearing.
1: Yeah, we did. We were kind of going topic by topic for a while. For a while. Mm-hmm.
0: We didn't know what was happening out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't want to do that. So I didn't
1: we, do it to humor you, by the way. Okay. I really enjoy teaching with you.
0: So, we we, we started out. Uh, saying that we were going to do the Four Noble Truths, Mm -hmm. the Eightfold Path, and then we started in on the Sermon on the Mount. Teachings of Buddha and Jesus to guide us through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we're teaching with a view to taking the words of now from the Christian scripture and applying them to the circumstances that we are in right now. Mm -hmm. And for a while we thought that was the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then it became George Floyd.
1: Happened pretty early on. And now
0: it's something else. Mm -hmm. And I thought how appropriate, how fitting was what we did last Sunday for the events of Mm 1-6. And then this next long paragraph three paragraphs in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it just it just fits amazingly. So I want to read it to you and you can follow along. It's on the screen. I keep thinking, Holly, that I'm going to talk about the structure and construction of the Sermon on the Mount, but We run out of time.
1: Well, maybe we need to just make sure we dedicate some time to that, because it's it's interesting.
0: And and I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe next Sunday we can do that. Depending on what crisis develops in the country between now and then. (laughs) So here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I think it was Gandhi that said, if you follow that soon, everybody will be blind.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best cloak and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies, let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you're working out of your true selves Martin Luther King's going to get reference there. A lot,
1: yeah.
0: Your God-created cells. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm, the rain to nourish, to everyone regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill <laughs> sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. You're kingdom subjects now. Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. <clears throat> this is a such a rich, rich, rich mm-hmm. passage. I was tempted mm-hmm. to... Text you last night and say, let's do this one again. We could. So here's a mantra that you can use to begin your daily spiritual practice with. My intention is to wake up. My intention is to clean up. My intention is to grow up. I think one of the great disservices that white male folk religion has given people is the notion that all there is to authentic spirituality and religion is just making a decision for Jesus Christ, accept Jesus into your life, and that's the end of it. You don't have to think about this anymore. you got to ticket to heaven. And my theological response to that is horse feathers. Any religion that is worth its salt knows that real spiritual life is one that has written over the door, always we begin again. Hmm. So I'm going to put a plug in here for your daily spiritual practice. People ask me what they can do, what that means, and I'm not going to go into that now, but I think that there are two books that you ought to read every year. One of them is the book, Always We Begin Again. Don't read it all at once. Just read a paragraph, a page, a day, until you finish it, make notes about it. This is a very, 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 very helpful book in so, so many ways. You will be grateful that you read it. And the other book that I recommend is a book written by Jim Hollis, who used to be the director of the Jung Center here in Houston. Called Living an Examined Life. You can read this book in 21 days, 21 chapters, about 10 minutes a chapter to read it. I'd read it and make notes, I'd reflect on it, I'd put it aside, and then come back and read it again the next year. Anyway, mm-hmm. we are going to try to do some honor to this very rich teaching in Matthew.
1: For sure. And I don't think it's a bad idea to stick to it another week. So we'll talk. <laughs> but this is, um, you know, this is where we are. And it is incredible how, how seamlessly some of the teachings that we've been exploring over the last almost 10 months have fit with what's been going on. So there's wisdom in old texts. And there is wisdom in making them new. We're living right now amidst ruptured social bonds which Cornel West calls America's existential crisis. Regeneration through violence has been our way in America. I want to imagine, however, that there is a possibility that we can regenerate through restoration, similar to what South Africa undertook after apartheid fell. It was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I'll get into that a little bit later. But what has happened and what is happening in our country is oriented toward keeping and maintaining the power that privileges white folks, particularly what Bill calls, uh, or what you read as called white male folk religion. Who wrote that? The 12 lies that, uh, that we need to undo. We always forget names right in the moment, forgive us. <laughs> What's your name again?
0: That's okay.
1: Okay. So I listened to a Princeton professor the other night give a talk at the, uh, through the Rothko Chapel online. Uh, professor Kianga Yamata Taylor, She talked about how the arc in this country, you know, that there's the famous saying that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And she actually said, no, maybe the arc in this country does not bend towards justice, but toward different forms of racism and injustice that we have not dismantled yet. That was sobering. As much as I want to believe that things have gotten better, I don't know yet if they actually have. Yes, we live in a time when interracial marriage is legal. Yes, integration is legal. Yes, the civil rights movement happened and Jim Crow and slavery ended. Yes, we had our first black president and now we celebrate our first female biracial president, vice president. But have we, as a society, ever truly committed ourselves to radical inclusion and equity? If we tell ourselves we have, We are believing a myth that is not only to the detriment of anyone who has been marginalized or treated unjustly, but we're also telling that myth to ourselves and we're doing ourselves a disservice. If we had committed ourselves to it fully societally, we would realize quite quickly that we have no need for enemies. To refer to MLK or Martin Luther King whose birthday is celebrated tomorrow, Gradualism towards a just society is a hindrance towards progress. So if we keep saying, oh, we'll get there. Oh, things have gotten so much better. That, in fact, the gradualism is illustrated when we say, but yeah, but look at all the progress we've made. I heard a, a really wise speaker once say, you know, the, ma- the majority or dominant um, population in a society tends to look backward at history and say, look where we've come. But those who have been historically marginalized in a society tend to say, look how far we have to go. And I I think that that we, in order to create a just society, we need to go to the margins, we need to go outward. For true progress to occur, we need a soul awakening, not just a legal one that supports our highest ideals, but we need a radical reconstruction. This is the world that people like Martin Luther King Gandhi, Jesus, worked toward a radically reconstructed world. We can have great laws, but if they are not implemented equally and justly, what do they mean? If we cannot lean into actually changing our hearts, learn not just to love our enemies, but really see them, really try to understand, then who are we as a society?
0: So... Um, the reason that people at the top tend to look back is because history is written by the winners. Yep. Except.
1: The history we learn about.
0: The history that we learn about is mm-hmm. written by the winners except the prophetic tradition in the, in the Jewish Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. The teachings of the Hebrew prophets and the teaching of Jesus come from the bottom. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, we, much of organized Christianity has had a tendency to retranslate them as if they come from yep. the top. Yeah, what, you know, what is
2: know. it?
1: We've, we've empired Jesus? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: What was the word that Jackie Lewis That's used? That's what she
1: said. We have empired Jesus. Empire Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Commodified.
1: Yeah.
0: So I'm glad you mentioned Martin Luther King because. One of my colleagues here at St. Paul's, the Reverend Karen uh, Richard Kwan, is uh, she does such wonderful work. I'm so grateful for Karen. Um, she put together this faculty that I mentioned that's going to teach the book of Ecclesiastes starting this Wednesday. So if you go on your life website, you can find that. And she sent out an email to the core faculty, those of us who are teaching, and had a link to a Martin Luther King sermon. And I was in one of those situations this week meaning in a doctor's office <laughs> where I had time to read. Okay. And I read this sermon by Martin Luther King that was delivered in 1957 yeah. at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And did you know I'm going to put a link to this in mm-hmm. the You probably knew this. There is a Martin Luther King Center for Study at Stanford University.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's right. So there's a whole database Mm -hmm. of this material that Mm -hmm. you can go back and and listen. And this is just another example of entanglement because the sermon that I read is based on this very passage of scripture that we're looking at today. Love your enemy. And King in the sermon acknowledges a couple of things. One is, no, Jesus was not kidding. Mm -hmm. The definition of enemy for us is very, very different than it was in the time of Jesus. Uh, The people on the bottom had a lot of people on top of them who were considered their enemies. Um, So Jesus was a kidding. (laughs) And then... King says, I acknowledge how very, very, very difficult it is to love your neighbor. Um, So in this sermon, King said there were several things that are needed to learn to love your neighbor. The first is, you begin by analyzing yourself. What is the how of this situation that we're in. What, how have we been complicit in creating our current existential crisis that Holly is describing? Why are these rioters so angry? Why, why do people be- believe so much weird stuff? And they are angry. They are angry enough to tear down the establishment. They want to overturn the election primarily because many of them honestly believe that their election was stolen from them. So they feel justified in their anger. Never mind that that isn't true, but because they believe that, their anger is justified. I think one of the things that we need to learn is that feelings don't make facts. Truth is not dependent on how you feel. The second thing involved in loving the enemy, according to King, is to discover the element of good in your enemy. We are all a mixture of light and dark, all of us. Within the best of us, there is some evil, and within the worst of us, there is some good. A third way to love the enemy is this. If or when the opportunity to present itself To hurt your enemy, don't do it. Don't retaliate. By the way, Jesus did not say, like your enemy. He said, love your enemy. And those are two. Hate and retaliation only increase the amount of hate and retaliation in the universe. And further, it just distorts the personality of the hater. Um, Somebody said that having a desire for revenge towards someone... Uh, is like drinking a poison thinking that it will affect them. It hurts the one who does the hating. Now, with your permission, and Mm -hmm. um, I may be entirely without it, I'd like to give a a, a smidgen of an application of these teachings by King to um, what we know from the current psychological, sociological data regarding the people who were the rioters in Washington on January the 6th. And I'm grateful to Andy Fuller, who is a Distant Ordinary Life attendee for sending me an article from The Scientific American that stimulated my thinking on this. It's one of the best things I've read to date about what's going on uh, in the minds of those who were compelled, driven, led, followed, Whatever the verb is, into the Capitol to, to do damage on January the 6th. So, uh, and I'll put a link to this article as well in the summary that goes out <clears throat> Tuesday morning. There are a lot of reasons that we've come to this point in, in our society, and two, pointed out by this article about why people have been attracted to this movement and what motivates them are called narcissistic symbiosis and shared psychosis. Now, big words, but let's define them. Narcissistic symbiosis, you can flip that a couple times to this one, next one. Yeah. Narcissistic symbiosis refers to the developmental wounds that make the leader-follower relationship magnetically attractive. The leader, hungry for adulation in order to compensate for some inner lack of self-worth or maybe organic disorder, projects grandiose omnipotence while the followers rendered needy by societal stress or developmental injury yearns for this protective parental figure who's going to solve their problems and have all the answers. We'll come back and elaborate on the last part of what I just said before we're done today. Mm. Shared psychosis refers to the infectiousness of severe symptoms that go beyond ordinary group psychology. So when a highly symptomatic (laughs) individual is placed in a position of authority that person's pathologies and delusions can spread through a group, producing paranoia and violence, even in individuals who prior to such involvement seem perfectly normal. And you're hearing that now in that news story that I sent you right. about that real estate dealer from...
1: Da- right near Dallas in Carrollton, yeah. Texas. Yeah.
0: I was just following the orders yeah. of my president. And right. Right but was posed outside the Capitol having a picture of herself.
1: Rushing in the door. Yeah. And posed outside the Capitol with the peace fingers next to a broken window. That's an interesting one to look at all the way around. So
0: our society, uh, and I've railed against this ever since I first heard about people wanting to cut teachers' pay and not raise minimum wage. Um, Our society has created and is creating a larger and larger group of people who are experiencing socioeconomic deprivation and injustice of some sort. And two things happen to people in this group, likely. On the one hand, they sicken in one way or another. They become addicts, they get depressed, they commit suicide, they slip into criminal behavior, they become sick. All of which overburden the safety nets put in place to deal with such situations. And because the safety nets cannot contain them, the situation just gets worse. Or they become mad as hell and become candidates for the conditions that got us into the situation that we found ourselves in on January the 6th. So what can we do? Well, if we know that structural injustice, I'm going to call it structural violence, if you will, produces what we now have, we will work to create a more just and humane society, which is what Martin Luther King Jr. and what Jesus are talking about. That means we're gonna work to reduce inequality in all of its forms. Economic, racial, gender, everything. Everybody has to have a place at the table. Now, perhaps the most frequent question I get regarding the situation that we're in uh, is what do I do if I have a family member or friend who's in this category? Yeah. Well, first of all, recognize that if somebody has been, if their mind has been hijacked by this movement, it's not open to logic. So try to reason with them or to to argue with them. You're only going to get pushed back Mm -hmm. like that. So don't try to confront. That only produces resistance. So um, if that doesn't work, you might try to change the circumstances that led to the faulty beliefs in the first place. There was a documentary that Sherry and I watched the other night. Uh, My son recommended it to us called How My Father Was Brainwashed. Hmm. And uh, it's just a very personal example of what the social dilemma talks about, Hmm. about how people who get caught up in social media and right-wing talk stuff come to believe it.
1: Yeah, one of my best friends is kind of going through that with her
0: mother. (laughs) And we don't realize that, I don't care whether it's MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News. Those people are out to monetize what they're selling, not Mm -hmm. to tell the truth. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But they've got clever ads about it, you Mm -hmm. know, about what to do. And you have to protect your own mental health. So that if you feel that it's necessary, you set really firm boundaries. Um, limit contact, uh, you might even have to leave a relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and, some, and boundaries also are a form of love. They can be a form of loving someone who is against you because it tells that person where you stand. I think I, I like to call it fierce love. It's protective of the other and protective of the self. But as I read this bit of the Sermon on the Mount during this time, it challenged me. I'm not going to lie. There's a part of me that is tempted to forge ahead and kind of write off those who are not committed to creating a society that works for all people. I feel like enough is enough. And how many more times do we have to be faced with what Martin Luther King calls the fierce urgency of now before we get it right? I think logically I can get to the place where I realize that those who were rioting Um, who are committed to this sort of small way of seeing how they were compelled and called to storm the Capitol. They feel just as passionately about their cause as I might feel about mine. But emotionally and morally, I, I cannot okay their behaviors. So how, again, do we love the people who are against a kind of expansion? I'm disappointed in our fellow humans, and I'm saddened by the continued violence and an inability to learn from it. And this spreads over generations. This is not just in the last year. This is, the, again, the foundations upon which our country is founded. I want to get past the violence and the revenge. In the early 13th century, an enemy was defined as one hateful toward and intent on harming an unfriend, from the Latin enemicus. And by that definition, those who stormed the Capitol last week and and intended harm are enemies. How, then, do we love them? I turned to two different texts this this week, and one of them was Strength to Love by Martin Luther King. It's a set of sermons, a book of sermons written by him over a number of years, in which the sermon that Karen sent you is contained, so I read three sermons. I read the one that Bill read, I read one called Love in Action, and then I read one called Love Your Enemies. I knew Martin Luther King would have something to say (laughs) that could prove useful and wise. The other book I'm reading and has been on my list for my dissertation work is No Future Without Forgiveness by Desmond Tutu. These guys definitely knew something about being perceived as an enemy and about harm being done to them and how to forge ahead with love anyway. And as I wrote this last week, I was sitting at our dining room table, which has become the sort of ubiquitous study table, (laughs) um, typing out some of my notes for this week. My kids asked Alexa to play King's famous speech, I Have a Dream. We'll listen to many snippets of that in the days to come, but will we hear it? So many of us have distilled that speech down to a few lines, the the lines that say, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. That part of the speech is palatable and sweet, and so many of us have just made it about that. But his speech is actually much more radical and demanding of justice than those few lines. In it, he holds those who might be called enemies, intent on doing harm, accountable. He calls on his people, my people, he says, not to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred, to conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. And later, he quotes scripture in saying, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. He calls for the people to love the enemy while also working for justice. So love and accountability are going hand in hand. And I would say working for justice for the most people is a form of loving the enemy because it creates a society that is inevitably better for them, too. Who were Martin Luther King's enemies? They were white segregationists and, dare I say, white moderates, who, as he put it, are more devoted to order than to justice, who prefer a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. This in-between, if you will, it is a, it's struggle. It's hard. It's awkward and demanding, and it requires change, not just of our systems, but of our beliefs and behaviors. And many of the words that Martin Luther King wrote in the 50s and 60s are still so relevant. It's telling that we haven't yet achieved not just the dream that he had, For America that that his fellow civil rights activists tried to forge. We we don't have the dream that Jesus had for a new and just society either. Which is why we still talk about things like the Sermon on the Mount. We'd have a new text if we were there. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. But we're not there yet. I don't know that any part of the world is. It's not just America. But this is the context in which we live. And the one to which we can speak. I got off for a second. (laughs) But... Martin Luther King loves his enemies in part by speaking the truth. The dream he has is something to reach for, like the carrot to behold, once the demands of justice have been made. He doesn't say the white people in America need to die for what they have done to black folks in America. He doesn't even say white folks need to pay for it. He says we need to speak to it, speak to the history and own the participation in healing it. The healing takes all of us, and we cannot gloss over the demands of justice and shoot straight for the dream. We would call that a spiritual bypass. So if I compare that to an argument with my spouse, if I try to move straight toward being nice without resolving the issue, my niceness isn't genuine or believed. So we must, in a word, grow up. So what can a grown-up love look like? The other text I turned to, as I said, was Desmond Tutu, and it looks like we look the beast in the eye and tell the truth about who we are and what we see there. He wrote, unless we look the beast in the eye, we find it has an uncanny habit of returning to hold us hostage. So if we can't look honestly at our present and how the past has influenced our present, we also cannot heal it. It's not so much that we have cultural amnesia. I don't think we've forgotten that our history includes slavery, genocide, sexism, mass incarceration. I think we just don't want to deal with it. I think we don't know how. And we, and by we, I am assuming mostly those who identify as white Americans, are in denial if the impact of our untransformed history has on the present. We haven't yet looked it in the eye. What do you say? Mm-hmm. That that we don't transform, we transmit. Mm-hmm. But I wonder what it could look like if we borrowed this ethos of "Sawubona," this is an, an African adage. It's a greeting that folks say that means, "I see you." So you would greet someone by saying, "Sawubona, I see you." And the other person says, "I see you too." And then there's Ubuntu, which was the underlying philosophy that, that guided the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa.
0: This is a fabulous photograph.
1: It's, it has a neat story to it. It's about a game being played. Uh, it, it, there was a whole story to it. I just thought, wow, that's, that's beautiful. The feet creating a circle around which everyone is included. And they're all holding the circle. So these children are holding this circle in space. But Ubuntu doesn't have a direct translation in English. We do not have an equivalent word. So that alone makes me a little bit sad. I have to use a lot of words to describe to you what it is. With Ubuntu, says Desmond Tutu, you are generous. You are hospitable. You are friendly and caring and compassionate. You share what you have. It is to say my humanity is caught up. It is inextricably bound up with yours. We belong in a complete bundle of life. And we say a person is a person through other persons. I want to repeat that. A person is a person through other persons. It is not, as Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. It says, I am human because I belong. I participate and share my humanity. A person who practices Ubuntu is open and available to others, affirming of others, does not feel threatened that others are able and good, for he or she has a proper self-assurance that comes from knowing that he or she belongs in a greater whole and is diminished when others are humiliated or diminished, when others are tortured or oppressed or treated as if they are less than human. It is to believe... What dehumanizes you inexorably dehumanizes me. And as this, car, this picture says, I am because we are. It is, in short, a philosophy of interbeing, the same philosophy that guided the Buddha, that guided Jesus, that guided Thich Nhat Hanh, and many others who have sought peace in their life's work. All of that in a single word, <laughs> Ubuntu. Martin Luther King, I believe, knew Ubuntu and believed in it fervently. And he and Jesus and thankfully others knew and led by this example that our destiny is bound up, that we are part of a single garment. We might, for the purposes of this teaching, say that love and forgiveness are inextricably linked. Loving the enemy is not sentimental. It is not a kind of like, oh, I love chocolate. It is like you mentioned earlier that Martin Luther King wrote, it's not even the same as like, which requires a kind of mutuality. Mm -hmm. Love is bigger than us. It is bigger than my feelings toward you and yours toward me. It's, I would say, in the in-between.
0: I think that the thing that Martin Luther King meant and the thing that Jesus meant, the thing that the Hebrew prophets meant, Mm is that they believed in the redemptive mm-hmm. power of love. Right. Of love. Yeah. Not liking, but loving. Right.
1: And, and inevitably to be the best form of love, we have to go outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where this idea of God comes in. You know, how, how, we have to see the world beyond ourselves mm-hmm. in order to participate in love. You know, Even one of the greatest minds of um, the last 100 years, now f- f- a little bit more, Einstein, a scientist who gave us relativity, who gave us infinity, who gave us expansion, who gave us so many different quantum theories, said, when it comes down to it, the universal force is love. Love is light that enlightens those who give and receive it. Love is gravity because it makes some people feel attracted toward others. And love is power because it multiplies the best we have and allows humanity not to be extinguished in their blind selfishness. So probably, I'm gonna take a guess here. Love is probably the one thing that Einstein couldn't explain, but he knew it existed.
0: When, when I was in seminary, the, one of the theologians who was really, really popular Head of a movement called Neo Orthodoxy was a German theologian by the name of Karl Barth, mm-hmm. and uh, Bart came to the United States to speak at the University of Chicago, and somebody asked him if he could. He, he went. He went after the lecture. He went to a bar and had a beer with the students. The great story, really. Um, Offended the Southern Baptist that he did.
1: <laughs> you don't drink beer with students, right? You had the beer
0: with a student. And some reporter asked Bart, said, so can you sum up your theology? And he thought for a minute, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. And I thought then, and I think now, it is the appropriation of that love mm. that has saved our African-American brothers and sisters. They got it.
1: The liberation piece. The, the liberation, yeah, piece not the city on the hill piece. Right, the liberation
0: yeah. piece. Absolutely, they got. yeah, and 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 capitalized on it, mm-hmm. you know, in a wonderful way.
1: The, the ethos of community, I think, is very strong, and in, in communities that have experienced marginalization, because mm-hmm. the reliance upon one another for um, joy is is huge, I think. So. You know, I I do actually believe that all people are capable of love somewhere in them. Some of us get farther away from that little spark, and some of us grow it. And it is something that, let me say it, through a daily spiritual practice can be cultivated, expanded, and practiced. (laughs) Many of us stumble in and out of acting from love. Some days I'm in good form. Other days, ask my kids, I'm not in great form. It is rarely a straight line. And if some part of me is hanging on to hatred and resentment, I am dehumanizing myself as well as the other. So forgiveness, this is Desmond Tutu's theory on forgiveness, is a form of self-interest that increases my own personhood mm-hmm. and does not allow me to wallow in anger and hatred. And King said that love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. In, in one of his sermons, I don't remember if this was the one that you read or if this was further in the book, Strength to Love, he writes about the three different kinds of love. He said, the kind of love I mean here is not eros, which is an aesthetic or romantic love. It is not philia, which is a reciprocal, intimate love. It is agape, the love of God operating in the human heart. In other words, the thing that is bigger than us that can help us to be better. How can we evolve then in both MLK and Jesus's words in a way that fit into the, to today's context? One of my criticisms of the way we have interpreted King is that much of the work of forgiveness and love fell on the shoulders of black folks. White society did not take responsibility for its actions or inactions on the whole. We changed laws but did we change our hearts as a society? Forgiveness, agape love—these are heart changes. I watch the way white supremacy still rears its ugly head in our society and in our systems, even at the highest levels of government, and I feel despair.
0: So, um, <clears throat> again, I'm really ooching in the direction of thinking we we might return to this very passage mm-hmm. again next week, because I do want to say some things about the structure of the Sermon on the Mount and uh, the origins of it and its original intent and how we use it. There is a biblical scholar by the name of Walter Wink, who has really helped me understand so much of uh, biblical teachings, um, more correctly I might, I might put it. You've heard the phrase, the principalities and the powers Mm -hmm. that Paul talks about and principalities and the powers are going to get you. Those are not some things in the sky, demons. Mm -hmm. What the principalities and powers meant to Paul, according to Walter Wink, is the system. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. The system. Mm.
0: Can't beat the system.
1: Yeah, and yet we make up the system.
0: It's a paradox. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And by the way, what you said about um, this kind of enlightened self-interest, we do this ultimately to benefit ourselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, Desmond Tutu and uh, the Dalai Lama had this huge conversation that was recorded in a book called The Book of Joy, and they keep saying that over and over and over. Loving your neighbor is in your best interest, Mm -hmm. eventually. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise,
0: you keep getting January 6th
2: mm-hmm. over
0: and over, or George Floyd, mm-hmm. or whatever, over and over. So Walter Wink wrote these words. He said, I'm puzzled that a species that has subjected virtually the entire universe to its analytical gaze and that has penetrated to the tiniest constituents of matter still knows next to nothing about how to become human. Mm-hmm. So the words in the Sermon on the Mount weren't written for us. They were not written with us in mind. But we can make them applicable to Oops, us. Um, the teachings of turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give the shirt off your back, were intended to be used by powerless people to express power in a nonviolent manner. Jesus was in his time and in his worldview taking people's usual way of dealing with life and turning it upside down. Mm -hmm. So someone in a position of authority, like a master to a slave, could and would slap a person if they didn't like what the slave was doing. The slap would be administered by the right hand, back of the hand like that. And Jesus said, when that happens, turn the other cheek. So then the person in authority would be required to slap with the left hand, which was a hand that was not intended to touch another person. So if they did that, they would become unclean. Cleanliness and inclusion were a huge part of that particular society. Um, to give somebody not only your cloak but also the next garment would have made the person in the audience that Jesus was speaking to naked. And this too would have produced uncleanliness into into the equation because if you look upon a, a naked person, that was to commit an unclean act. a person in authority, like somebody in the military, and there were many, many of these people in the time of Jesus. Um, and they were in the group considered the enemy, by the way. They could and did order people at the bottom to do all sorts of things for them. And one of them was, here, carry this burden for me. and And, and the law prohibited the soldier... From, uh, pr- prohibited anything being carried more than a mile. So that if you did carry something more than a mile, that put you in charge. As you were the person in authority. Now you were making the rules and that disempowered the other person. Hmm. Very, very clever way of uh, getting power. You might remember the scene in the crucifixion story where soldiers ask Simon, to carry the cross of Jesus. That was just this very thing happening. So Jesus was deconstructing the way things had always been thought about and putting something else in place. The lesson or the opportunity for us here is that we have to deconstruct what has been inhibiting a more mature faith and recognize that uh, to, to live through that destabilization is okay. Deconstruction is very destabilizing for a lot of people. So I want to go back to what Carl Jung said about a living religion. Uh, a living religion is one that's going to solve our problems if we can step into it and let it embrace us. And my definition of a mature faith is one that will teach us how to live without certainty and yet not be paralyzed by fear. Now, I want to give you some good news in the midst of all this bad news that's coming out, in spite of what you see in the newspaper. There are millions of people on this planet who are following this path. They are not in a lot of churches. They're in some. But they're particularly the evangelical movement that supported uh, our current president does not allow for this. But you see this movement in something like the ordinary life class. You see it in a number of places in St. Paul's where um, there is this openness and inclusivity plus um, socially engaged religion Dealing with the homeless and the poor, the racial issues. Uh, check out the St. Paul's anti racism page on the St. Paul's website, and you'll, you'll see encouraging things there. Um, but there is a spiritual revolution happening in this country, and it, it involves doing exactly what Holly and I are trying to do right now exploring what it means to have a mature faith. And, of course, it also means exploring what's been inhibiting us from having a mature faith. So I think that one of the places that we could start is by admitting that the religion of our culture, consumerism, has us exactly where it wants us. Mm, Sure. We are passive. We are compliant. We don't think too deeply. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: We don't ask too many questions. We don't have a lot of conversations from the heart. Mm. We talk about the weather.
1: Well, it's as you have said, so many come into your office and say, yeah. I, want to, I want things to change, but I don't want to change. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, we are required to change. And that is, um, and, and it's inevitable. It's, <laughs> it's also beautiful when we do change because we get to be embraced by the fullness of our, our full selves. Well, yeah.
0: just keep in mind that we are, as a culture, in grips of white male folk religion. We're in the grips of patriarchy. And patriarchy is first and foremost about power. It's not about intelligence. It's not about skill. And, and the power in patriarchy is power over. And a big part of our current dilemma is that we have not yet mustered the creativity and the cultural consensus to create life-enhancing ways of relating not only to one another, but to life itself. And that's what I think today's passage is all about for us in the right here, right now.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: One, of the, one of the sermons that was in Strength to Love also talked about um, the most radical prayer that Jesus ever said, which was, forgive them for they know not what they do. I would, I would venture to say that that may also be one of the most grief-filled prayers that Jesus ever spoke. There's, mm. there's both a radical love in that and there's also grief. Forgive them. They know not what they do. And there, there are a lot of spiritually blind people in society. I'm positive I've acted in blindness. But forgiveness helps us to accept this blindness, this sort of spiritual youthfulness, if you will. And it allows us to move forward and grow up. When we learn to love our enemy, we need a kind of love that is both forgiving and accountable. And what I think we need from our perceived enemies is accountability. This is a creative kind of love, a fierce love. And this transforms societies and individuals. What Martin Luther King wrote is that what is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. As I read uh, parts of Bishop Tutu's book this week, The uh, No Future Without Forgiveness, it's, and I read about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how that came about, I began to sort of feel like, gosh, have we missed the boat on that, on something like that as a country. When apartheid fell, uh, the TRC was assembled and pretty swiftly implemented. Apartheid ended officially in 1990, and the TRC um, commenced a couple years later and really fully began in 1995. They oversaw restorative justice initiatives for seven years. And at no point in our history have we successfully carried out any measure of kind of collective restoration. And I I wanna say a, a quick word about restoration is that both parties have to be willing It doesn't work if if the perceived enemy and the victim or vice versa is not willing. We cannot force restoration. This is a collective agreement. And the way that they agreed to do it was that those who had been victimized or oppressed would get to tell their stories publicly if chosen. And that those who had been the oppressors, the murderers in some cases, in order to receive amnesty of any kind They had to tell their stories. They had to confess. If not, they could be persecuted and jailed. It took time, seven years. And my guess is that that real work, this work of rebuilding a society in which there is uh, togetherness. So this third way uh, that was a kind of public storytelling, really people reported feeling a relief, a sense of ease, a sense of freedom by telling the stories, those who were victimized and those who were the oppressors. Both parties had been imprisoned by their trauma and their crimes. Both parties widely reported experiencing relief and freedom upon the telling. It wasn't perfect, but I think there was this willingness to see, to hear, to love, and to forgive. We're far more than five years out from some of the worst crimes in our collective history. Several generations have come and gone. But this is the question I'd like for us to entertain just as we sort of sit with this today. If I believe that loving our enemies has to do with restoration, what could that look like today? This is a genuine inquiry. I do not have all the answers, though I have some ideas. I truly mean for us to sit with the question and, have it, and hold it kind of gingerly in our hearts and minds. How can we love those who have wronged us and those we have wronged in an accountable but restorative way. What does it look like for you, for your community, for this class, and for this church? I want to remember Ubuntu. I am because we are. And to close, I'll read the last verse of one of Richard Blanco's poems called The Declaration of Interdependence from his book, how to Love a Country, it's a beautiful book, beautiful book of poetry. And he framed this poem around lines of the Constitution. The last stanza is as follows. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We're the cure for hatred caused by despair. We're the good morning of a bus driver who remembers our name. The tattooed man who gives up his seat on the subway. where every door held open with a smile when we look into each other's eyes the way we behold the moon. We're the moon, we're the promise of one people, one breath, declaring to one another, I see you, I need you, I am you.
0: That's beautiful, thank you. I don't know that book of poems.
1: It's a good one.
0: So maybe we'll come back and do this, (laughs) I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is l- dismissed by a lot of people as being utopian idealism. Mm-hmm.
1: It's reconstructive.
0: It's, re- it, it, it's, it's reconstructive. And it's, it, I, I think that one of the things that I came away from studying it this week and why I'm so indebted to Martin Luther King Jr. for his sermon that was preached a long time
2: ago mm-hmm.
0: is that he said two things. Jesus wasn't kidding. (laughs) And this is hard.
1: And this is hard.
0: So no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next Sunday. Thank you, Holly. Mm -hmm.
1: Thanks.